Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by Ultimate OE. If you're a keen hunter and outdoorsman and you're thinking about heading over to do your overseas experience in the near future or you think it's high time you did one, then you should really consider doing one of our hunting experiences. These days we offer hunting experiences in both Canada and Scotland, which are designed for hunters by hunters. We look after all of the paperwork side of things, help you out with your visa, make sure you're covered legally, all that kind of stuff, make sure that's streamlined. And we also teach you everything you need to know before you leave New Zealand. This allows you to hit the ground running when you get to the country, so both Canada and Scotland, different trainings for different places. It's industry specific, so we teach you what you need to know or what your employers want you to know before you get there. This allows us to secure the best possible jobs, so we have access to the best jobs in both Scotland and Canada, and they're all paid jobs and we work with only the best outfitters. So if you want a little bit more out of your OE, you want to go over there, have a real adventure, do something really unique, and expand your mind and experience as a hunter, see how the rest of the world does it, or at least how they do it in Scotland and Canada, uh, this is a great stepping stone. So if you're interested, flick us an email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com, or check out our website, ultimateoe.co.nz for more details. G'day and welcome to today's episode of The Educated Hunter. Today I have a conversation with a really good friend of mine and professional hunting cameraman, Todd Bissenden. Todd is one of the top professional cameramen in the industry worldwide. He's incredibly experienced. I met Todd when he was working for Jim Shockey. He was Shockey's number one cameraman for about seven years. Uh, since then, Todd has started his own business. He provides professional filming services all around the world as well as professional works as a professional hunting guide. As I said before, he's very, very experienced. He's traveled to somewhere in the region of 25 different countries around the world hunting and filming, and that doesn't include double-ups. And he estimates somewhere between 230 and 250 different unique trophy species filmed on camera so harvested on camera I should say so when you actually stop and do the math on that that's an incredibly large amount of hunting that has to go in to get those kind of numbers and that doesn't include double ups either so Todd has got a lot of experience on the ground and all around the world um, both in filming guiding as well as seeing um, animal conservation in practice and how hunting fits into that when it comes to filming running time footage, I don't think there's anyone in the industry that can hold a candle Todd. He is a naturally gifted cameraman, as well as being very cool and calm under pressure, which makes him uh, one of the best in the industry. If you want to follow Todd on Instagram, have a look at some of his photos, you'll soon see how much this guy gets around. Um, he's at Todd Bissenden on Instagram, spelt all one word, T-O-D-D. -D, 
B-I-S-S-E-N-D-E-N at Todd Bissenden. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So without further ado, here is Todd Bissenden. All good. Well, uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for getting up here. I've dragged dragged Todd up into a hotel room here in Vegas before he gets on a flight back to Canada. So appreciate you being here, mate. It's absolutely my pleasure. Awesome. So I guess just for the audience, I guess a good place to start would be sort of explaining how and when we met. It's been a long time. Uh, 2009? Eight? 2008. Yeah, that'd probably be about right. 2008. So uh, we've uh, seen some adventures together and done some uh, pretty amazing things. And uh, uh, it's been quite a whirlwind for both of us. Yeah, I think so. We were... um if we could go back to that day when I first sort of met you and we started working together, um, if I knew what was coming, I, I'm not sure if I would have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think I would have changed anything. I absolutely would have done the same thing, but I, I'm sure my perception of what was about to come and what actually came was um, slightly different. I actually <laughs> remember one of the first times we spent any time together, like professionally. And just to give everyone context, we were filming together for the same guy. and remember Jim sat us down and he was going through his schedule for the year. Do you remember that? Oh, was that in his office? Or where was that? His office or over in the editing suite there yeah. on the island. And he was going through the schedule of the year. And by that stage, you'd been with him for probably over a year. And he was sort of running down through these countries that I'd never heard of. And, <laughs> and, and he kind of looked at me and I looked at him. And I, I, I was deliberately not saying anything because I sort of thought, well, Todd's been here longer than I have. He He should have the have a chance to pick first and every time a weird country came up you just sort of looked at me like <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know you just hear some names and you just you don't know what you're going to get into on certain trips and you don't know what to what to uh what to expect or you know and when you're when you're young and in your early 20s we both you know we're the same age so you know you start in your early 20s and you're kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and you know like you said you know when you're going over some of these country, countries that he was going to hunt at you had no idea where it was or what you could hunt there and you know what you're getting yourself into so a lot of this stuff was really eye-opening and and um yeah there's some some countries i would go back to and some countries i would definitely not go back to yeah absolutely i remember the, one of the first ones off the list was azerbaijan and you looked at me like i ain't going there and i was yeah, like yeah. i don't even know where that is Sure, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll do the one after that one. And I mean, he had such a busy, busy schedule. And between him and him and Corey, you know, me and you were pretty much nonstop. And yeah, pretty much nonstop. <laughs> yeah, I think the peak I was doing three hundred days a year, and you're probably doing the same, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is when you actually break it down into the odd bit of downtime between hunts, and then I used to take a decent chunk of time off over Christmases. Not of a hell of a lot left in the year when you start breaking it down like that. Yeah, I mean the uh, when I first got on, you know, that first year in two thousand, I started in the industry uh, late two thousand seven, and then two thousand eight um, was an absolute blur. I think we did twelve different countries and three hundred and five days on the road. Two thousand and eight was or two thousand nine was pretty similar, and then two thousand ten kind of had to pull the brakes back a bit and not and not do as much and you know i i really liked the guiding thing so i you know i attempted that a little started into that just a little bit and and 
and yeah, was a little bit more selective. If I had a, ch- I had a chance to be selective, yeah, I was. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Thank you, Maddie. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you grew up on Vancouver Island. That's right, eh? Yes, sir. What do you remember? Your sort of intro into hunting. What was your sort of hunting background before you went into the full time camera work? My family, you know, um, uh, it was a hunting family. Uh, my 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 dad used to own an an archery business out of our backyard. So I have pictures of myself and you know in diapers holding a little stick bow, soccer darts, and you know, ever since I can remember, I've been around something hunting oriented. And so you know, I used to have a three D range in my backyard, an archery business out of my garage, out of my you know parents' garage when I was super young, and then. Uh, my dad got out of that, but we'd still go chase black tails and, and black bear when I was really young. And then, you know, when I, when I got into be a teenager, I still hunted a little bit, but, um, not quite as much. I was involved in some, you know, other sports that kind of took me away from it a bit, but i still did some hunting. And then, um, yeah, my late teenage years, I was just kind of really had some other hobbies that I got into. And then what was that golf? Yeah. I got into golf pretty serious. And then I came out of university, um, playing golf in university and then all of a sudden you know I kind of got really burnt out of that and and it kind of was a blessing you know I probably should have looking back on it maybe I probably should have stayed and done a a four-year degree that I wish I had something to fall back on per se but it also led into a very good timing of working for a company in the industry that had an opening for you know a camera guy and an opportunity and and it really yeah I mean I've been this is my 11th or 10th or 11th year in the industry now working full-time so it's it was kind of a blessing you know to to be able to get into it and see what I've seen and traveled to where I've traveled and and it's been pretty fortunate yeah just to give everybody some context when Todd said he used to play a little bit of golf (laughs) you're a very talented golf player you were in Dallas University on a Um, scholarship yeah well yeah when when I was about 14 or 15 I got nationally uh i got very competitively on the national level in canada and and um when i was 17 i was a i think a top 10 ranked player in in canada and and i think a top three ranked player in british columbia so i was um scouted by the university of houston and and i went there for a couple years and played for the university of houston on a golf scholarship and um by the time my kind of second year was uh going on i just kind of the whole university college thing was a great experience, but I just really kind of got burnt out of golf playing it so much in my teenage years. And it was a great time in my life, but, um, yeah, I just, I really got burnt out of this it. This is coming from how many holes of golf you done this week, Todd? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, now I'm getting back into it. Yes. I mean, I'm kind of coming out of retirement a little bit now on the golf level, but, uh, yeah, I played, uh, a hundred holes of golf before SCI in two and a half days. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it, if anyone knows anything about golf, they'll sort of that's understand. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot. All good. All right. So fast forward a few years, you you um, started on with Shockey and you his full time cameraman, and then you sort of got onto a little bit of. Um, well, let's do this for those Kiwis listening and, and those listening to this podcast who who perhaps don't know who Jim Shockey is. Why don't you just give us a, a brief Cliff Notes version of who Jim Shockey is and, and what kind of industry that we were in? Um, I don't know how you how you would um, really describe him uh, in in a in a short statement. Uh, he's 
probably the most well-known hunter in the world um uh through his his multiple tv shows he has he has a huge huge following probably the biggest following as far as outdoor um hunting television you know as well as um on the international hunting level he's one of the most recognized international hunting level and what he's um been able to obtain from uh his international hunting from pretty much every corner and country that's legally huntable. Um, and then also on the outfitting level, uh, he's a very recognized outfitter in, you know, the Yukon and British Columbia and Saskatchewan. So he's, that's probably one of the main reasons why he's, you know, he's a triple threat on in, in the hunting industry is he's, he's multifaceted and, 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 um, and, uh, yeah, he's, yeah, I would say in in a nutshell, he's the biggest single person in the hunting international industry. Yeah, so he, I, it's it's quite funny. I didn't know him from a bar of soap the first time I met him when he came to New Zealand, and he, in those days, um, we didn't see a lot of him. But now, um, even in the New Zealand, our tiny little corner of the world down there, you quite often see his face in in hunting magazines, and you know, with his um, endorsements with the likes of Leopold and and Primos and, and that kind of thing. His face is popping up more and more down our end of the world. So, yeah, I guess that's a, a pretty good description of who he is. But the long and the short of it, you know, when me and Todd were both working for him, we were both filming, sort of tag-teaming on the hunting with Jim and then hunting with other clients within Jim's hunting territories as well as hunting with a couple of other people, Corey Knowlton for one, that was involved in there. And then when Eva got in as well, oh, she absolutely. started travelling as well, we both went on trips with Eva when she was introduced into the, the industry. Yeah, so between the two of us, we were quite busy. Both of us were running anything from 280 to 300 days a year hunting and filming. So the the long and the short of it is we got to do a lot of travelling, and Todd in particular has done um, – how many countries do you reckon you've filmed and hunted in now? And this is not even ca- counting the numerous times you've been to some places. Yeah, I mean um- – Individually, you know, not including the multiples, I think I counted at 24 uh, different countries the other day. I might be missing one that I can't think of. But, yeah, 23 or 24 for sure, different countries. And, you know, some of those places like Ethiopia, you know, three times. And Peru, three times. And South Africa, three. And, you know, Cameroon, three. And so there's definitely some multiples in there. But, you know, yeah, 23 different countries for sure. That's pretty impressive. Do you have any idea – just to give everyone a, an idea, there's a in the higher echelons of international hunters, they tend to count species, so different species that you can legally hunt all around the world, and they aim for what's called a Weatherby Award, which is a a completely different podcast in itself. But that one's a big statement. Yeah, that we one, won't yeah. go down that rabbit hole. But essentially, they uh, how they get awarded the Weatherby Award is uh, is how many species that you've hunted worldwide and how much you've um, donated and contributed to conservation in a whole and then they take those factors into account it goes into some very complicated um, political system that nobody understands at the end of it <laughs> exactly. they hand out a award called the Weatherby Award which is quote end quote the greatest hunter of the year so Jim um, was chasing that pretty hard for a while and he got up to how many 300 and he's three he's got to be three mid 300s yeah for sure and I think he's probably a shoe in I would say, in the next two to three years he'll win that. And they, they give out one award to one person a year. 
Uh, so it's not multiple people. It's not like when you hit a certain number, you're magically in. It's you know, it's given to one person per year. So you are kind of the international hunter of the year type thing. Oh, deal. And the reason I bring it up, not that me and Todd are either going to be in the running to win the Witherby Award, we're just new. No. <laughs> you you got to have a cool ten million in your back pocket to be able to pull off the the hunting that you need to do and the travelling you need to do to pull that off and it's time and effort and you get a lot of guys in their later years that have been very successful that decide to dedicate their lives to trying to win the Weatherby Award but that all said and done how many species do you reckon you've filmed and you think that you know I can't think of anyone else maybe one or two guys that have um, I that, that one would honestly take me a few hours to sit down and go through the countries and go through pictures and stuff I mean on on an easy on the safe level it'd be at least 250 um yeah because I mean I started on when Jim was at 130 so I mean Jim's done over 200 and and that's all some of the weird stuff he didn't you know so I mean on it yeah on an easy level probably be 250 different species yeah, which is when you actually stop and think about it and, and figure it out, that's that's very very impressive. The time and effort to get to that number is is very hard. There's a few that you can tick off real quick, but it's the little small ones that you have to go and spend three weeks in the jungles of West Africa to hunt one specific animal just to get one more. That's on not there. very fun. No. <laughs> it's an adventure. It is. Speaking of that, I, one of the ones I had noted down here that you did that I always sort of on one hand wish that I'd done and on the other hand was thankful that I didn't was that that self-guided one in Cameroon you want to run us through that yeah that was uh that was yeah that's a very memorable hunt and that was my second international trip my first ever international trip was a um was an uh ibex hunt in Turkey and so that was a mountain hunt and then after that that was kind of a trial run for Jim and I to see if we were compatible on the road even though I've known Jim since I was five or six years old and and played golf with him in my teenage years and known him personally you know we got along great but as far as working together that was our trial really trial run and so after that he's like okay well you want to go to Cameroon and you know you know being a 20 year old and never being outside of North America I didn't know where it was so um you know it's a country in West Africa pure jungles um and so he's like, yeah, let's go to Africa and we're going to go, you know, into the jungles and it's a self-guided hunt. So we, we went over and spent, I think, uh, 12 days and hunted with pygmies and we brought our own food, we brought our own tent, little one man tent. Um, we hired these little porter pygmy guys to, we had these little tiny tubs of gear that we got to live out of and we couldn't. You know, we had one tub that maybe held 20 pounds of gear, and I had to get all my camera gear in there, like extra clothes. And we had to go, it took us two days to get into our camp. And I can't, I don't know, I can't even describe how grueling and eye-opening to a whole different world that I never knew existed or think of. But it was, it really put everything into perspective, going and seeing that and doing that and grinding through stuff that I never knew I could physically do, mentally do, and and to be able to go do that, it really kind of set a pretty high bar for the, everything else that was, was coming up. And it was an unbelievable one-of-a-kind experience that um, was tough. But uh, Do you remember what you were hunting there? Yeah, we, uh, we went in there for Dwarf Forest Buffalo, um, 
we didn't end up getting one. It was it it was too rainy, uh, so they were hanging out in the swamps that we couldn't see them. If it was drier, they usually go in and burn these swamps where you know you can see them and track them. So we heard some, uh, but we couldn't get up to them. But mainly we were hunting and calling dikers. So dikers are the you know kind of the pretty much the world's smallest antelope. Um, they can then the blue diker is the smallest of the dikers. Uh, well, maybe not the smallest, but the second smallest, I think, other than the aiders. But, you know, you sit there and you sit at the base of a tree in a jungle that you can't see more than 10 yards in, and your little pygmy trackers and, and guides that don't speak English, so, you know, they sit you down and, oh, excuse me, um, they sit you down in the vines and they make these, I don't even want to make the sound, I don't know. Yeah, 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 exactly there. And then you sit there and, you know, you try to... noise yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah, but something similar to that, yes, Matt. And, you know, you you, you sit there and and, uh, and then these dikers just come hauling tail and running through and you got a shotgun trying to shoot this thing and, and, and as a cameraman, you're trying to get this thing on camera that you can barely even see with your eye and you just pretty much hold your camera up wide and hope the heck that, you know, kind of keep it in line with where the where the hunter's pointing his gun and try and get lucky. Um, so, yeah, we killed some dikers because we, we, we were running out of food. We had um, macaroni and cheese, Mr. Noodles, uh, instant meals, uh, cans of stew. We ate very rough um, and then we killed some dikers for some energy <laughs> and nutrition and uh yeah we did so we killed a few different species of dikers and blue and i believe there's a red fronted or a red flank or i can't remember it's been it's been a few years been a few haircuts <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah no it's for anyone listening like <clears throat> hunting wise like mental toughness is one thing when you you're climbing a mountain or you know even stuck in a tent in the pissing rain you know or snow and all that kind of stuff but jungle hunting is a completely new brand of punishment yeah it's <laughs> especially if you're not <clears throat> mentally like the heat the humidity the bugs the every everything has thorns it's it's a it never really gets cool i mean it may cool down at night but it's you know 90 to 95 percent humidity and um you know it's you know, 30 Celsius, 30 to 33 Celsius during the day. And, you know, maybe the lowest it gets is kind of 26. And then you add the humidity in there. So it never really cools off. It's always feels extremely hot and sticky and your t-shirts are soaked. You know, you're just constantly wet and sticky and gross. You know, you're walking through the jungles and you got the, you got the little pygmy guys that are got machetes that are cutting thorns and stuff but i mean they're four feet tall so they're cutting at their height and then a normal person at six feet's running into vines and getting cut up and scarred and um it's it's a but like you said the whole the whole mental thing is a is a, a whole different beast and you know i'm actually really glad that that was one of my first ever trips you know because i've been on some I've been on some very rough hunts, but I've also been very spoilt on some hunts where you stay in very nice places. And, and, you know, so it's to be able to reflect on very hard hunts makes you appreciate the other one. So having that hunt as one of my first ones and, and being able to conquer that and, and physically do it and mentally do it. And, you know, if I'm on a hunt, I can just always look back on that one 
specific hunt. It's funny how you mentioned that one, as I always think about that hunt. That's like I saw the footage of that and thought that is possibly the yeah. most miserable thing I have yeah. ever seen. Yeah, so I, I go back to that place. I go back to that place a lot on hunts that you know, if I'm men- mentally getting worn out on hunts nowadays, even ten years, eleven years later, um, I go back to that place and I'm like, if I can do that, I mean, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny. I mean, I. You know, later spent quite a bit of time in the jungle and bits and pieces like that. But once you sort of you find where the that base level is, you're right. You can look back on things and, and say, look, if I can do that for ten days or twelve days, I can do anything. Which is something that a lot of people, I think, in this day and age, lack in their lives is really understanding what it means to be a remote because you're on a backpack, self guided hunt in the middle of Cameroon with the pygmies. Pygmies. There's no picking up a phone. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, you have a cell phone, but it's like. Yeah, you can phone on a cell phone, but it's like you don't have no idea where they are. You've literally trusted your life with these pygmy guys that speak a, a version of French. And then you have one half translator that speaks eight words of English. And you've trusted these guys that take you a two days full walk from the nearest dirt road. And then that nearest dirt road's an eight-hour drive on dirt road from the nearest paved road. So it's like saying you're in the middle of nowhere if the if you were to upset these pygmy guys and they left you were done there's no way you could describe where you were and this is 2007 where you can't just send out your location to someone or whatever and you know it's pre you know in reach days where you know you can keep tabs on yourself and you know technology nowadays is a little bit easier i mean i guess if you had a gps you could send out but okay so you're sitting in the jungle how are you going to get out of there <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly it's the days before global rescue and that yeah know, come and get you and then use it as a marketing ploy to show them how great they were at coming to find you and to be fair i saw that and i thought well if he can he can handle that then i should be able to handle that because um he's a canadian therefore i should be able to handle anything he can <laughs> and i, I sort of distinctly remember the first trip i think oh, i can't remember my first west african one whether it was cameroon or Congo. You did, I think you did Cameroon before you did Congo, right? Or was yeah, it vice Cameroon. versa? No, it might have been Ghana. Ghana first. That's yeah, it. so we were in Ghana, and that was that was all night hunting. That's where I learned how to sweat. Like that was uh, yeah, know, nights. Yeah, night in the jungles is yeah. You, that's when all the bugs that come out to bite you come out, and that you you can't see. And being the cameraman, you're the, usually third or fourth in line. So the first guy, you know, awakes. Or well, the nasty. Do you remember the little safari? Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the pH disrupts them. Then your hunter really pisses them off, and then you and me, as the third guy in line, they're ready to bite at that time. <laughs> at that point, they're just ready to go, and they get up. And I, you know, being a Kiwi, I always used to like wearing shorts and you know short sleeves and all that kind of stuff. I tell you what, boy, you spend any time and. <laughs> in, the, in the jungles anywhere in the world whether you're in South America or yeah, Africa boy, you're, you're covering every inch you can I used to tuck my shirt into my belt and somehow those ants would still get in underneath you and bite you on the guts and latch they on hurt. they hurt they like actually this. pack a punch okay so you did Ghana well not Ghana sorry Cameroon self-guided that's a really really memorable one for you what would else you think of any off the top of your head that would um, be I get quite often asked, you know, what's in, what's my favorite country I've ever been to or what's my favorite hunting destination. And, um, you know, hunting destination, you know, I got a few different places, you know, such as the Yukon, you know, it's just a great epic hunt. But as far as overall destination, I like Ethiopia. Um, it's, 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 in my opinion, it's, it's a full package. And it kind of surprises people because no one really thinks of Ethiopia as this 
big great hunting destination but it is it's this really special unique place that has a lot of animals that you can't hunt anywhere else um beautiful different regions from these high mountain bamboo um jungles at nine and ten thousand feet all the way down to this desert regions in the danakil area to the savannas in the omo valley but what makes it even better is they're not only the unique animals they got great plains game and mountain yalas they're big uh special unique animal it's one of the probably top five animals in all of africa but their bird life their monkeys their baboons their their and then to top it all off they got probably the most untouched culture maybe in africa um the lip plate people and and some of these some of these um uh tribes and, and villages that we were able to vil- or able to uh, visit while we were there they're not there to take pictures and and just for the 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 tourism they're they're a two-hour charter plane from this from the closest town and city so far that they don't see western people they don't see cameras they don't see so the way they dressed in their in their um animal skins and they put in their clay in their hair for um you know, cooling themselves down and, and, and all these cool, neat beads and all the stuff they wear is not for people to take pictures with. It's truly how they live in these straw huts and, and, you know, going and taking a a tour of this village and, um, in the Omo Valley and in this other region that you don't, they don't hunt it anymore, but, um, where the lip plate people are, uh, it's, it's absolutely, truly fascinating to see how they live and it's the same way they live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, it's no electricity, no, no Western influence. And they seem happy and, you know, other than a little bit of civil unrest that they've had some issues in, in Ethiopia. But yeah, that's, that to me is, is a really, it's, it's the most well-rounded, I think, um, hunting place in the world because it just, it has everything. And we've, I mean, you've been there, I've been there three times and, and, and at least 24 days on each of those three trips I did. Um, so I've spent almost, I spent two and a half months in Ethiopia and I truly love it. It's, it's, it's the most well-rounded place. It's not just about the killing the animals. It's got everything. It's got absolute cool culture, birds, you know, everything, scenery, and plus, it's just badass hunting too. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. We're very aligned on that fact. On you know, doing what I've done and we're, we're the same people. Often we'll ask you, okay, what's your favorite animal that you've ever hunted or the favorite place you've ever been? One of my most standard answers, I think, these days, having had to think about it quite a bit, is Ethiopia as well. Because I mean, I use it for two reasons. A, the diversity is unreal, the amount of different endemic animals that exist there. I think they've got the most endemic animals of anywhere else in Africa. Um, And then the mountain Nyala is a a fantastic example of an animal that to me is possibly one of the most stunning that exists on planet Earth, period. When you see that thing on the hoof, it is crazy cool. And where they live, bro, like up in those mountains of like Odabulu and stuff, and you you touched on it, they're like, they're saprophytic jungles at 10,000 feet, which means that a lot of those trees originated in the canopy and they drop vines down into the earth. And so you end up with these crazy, twisted, mossy trunks and it's high mountain, high humidity. Lots of rain. Lots of rain, (laughs) fog, misty. And then you've got these... How would you describe a mountain in Yala? Like they are just it's stunning. 
the easiest way, it's like a, it seems to be like a cross between a kudu and a bushbuck. Um, I think it's actually a part of the bushbuck family, I believe. Are they a spiral horn? Yeah, they are a spiral horn, I believe. But they're close. They say they're closer to related to a bushbuck than they are a kudu, even though they look like a kudu. But they're kind of like a kudu on steroids. Their front end is not built like a kudu. Their front end is built. It's like like a horse. Yeah, it's like really like big, jacked, really muscly front end, big neck, and they have a curled horn, similar to um, similar to a kudu, but not quite as long. I mean, the world record I think in Nassau's versus is like forty two. Yeah. 42. No, no, no. Forty seven. The second one's like forty two. Nassau's world record is absolutely crazy. Nassau's Russo's is another conversation in itself i yes i sat down at a table with him yesterday actually and he doesn't say much but man he's a he's probably one of the greatest phs of all time i would say so. if not yeah top five all time for sure absolutely and hopefully one day Touchwood will get him on this podcast and, <laughs> yeah. and and pick his brain but i mean it'd be like getting blood out of a stone i think you'd think you'd have to really like you to open up but i mean we might get his son jason on who probably knows most of his Stories and Jason Russo, just to give you context, is the outfitter that both Todd and I hunted with in Ethiopia. And in terms of a conservationist and a a, a passionate hunter and professional PH and outfitter, yeah. they don't come much better than Jason. Yeah, and that's another reason, one of the reasons why I love Ethiopia so, so much too, is Jason runs a, a great hunting company. Um, you can trust him. Um, this isn't a plug, it's just he's really good outfitter, really good guy, really good guide. And, he, you know, in order to spend, you know, three to four weeks with, someone every day um it's really nice to be able to get along with the person and trust the person's judgment and you know that um yeah he's leading you down the right way what i was going to get to the second but the mountain Ninyala, stunning beautiful animal but i use it a lot as an example when i'm talking to people particularly about conservation when you know people have a perception of animals in africa and a perception of africa and Ethiopia, my perception of it before I went was all about drought and famine, etc., etc. When I first went to Ethiopia, it's green, lush, fertile. Um, so I was totally off base, and that was a whole conspiracy in itself. We won't get into it. But being brought into that area by Jason, seeing these mountain Ninyala that most people have never even heard of, the most stunning animals ever. And Jason and the other outfitters there are basically the only line of defense between that beautiful stunning animal and complete extinction yes it's uh it's a that where they live and where they exist is a the the rift valley ethiopian rift valley uh is an absolutely amazing one-of-a-kind place and like you're saying it's a -a one-of-a-kind animal and and um yeah, it's it was an absolute pleasure to kind of run those hills with them. Yeah, I mean the the Ninyala have a, a huge value because there's only one place in the world you can hunt them, and there's only a certain there's one or two outfitters that you can hunt them with, and they are worth a lot of money. I don't even know what they're going for, but oh, it's a over, lot. Yeah. It's over eighty or ninety now, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was eighty five last time I checked. So eighty five thousand dollars for for uh, US. For, yes, US for uh, for a, a mountain. Niala um, Safari, and they're usually booked kind of multiple years in advance. And absolutely, yeah. And it's plus all your charter fees and your taxes and your your, your fees and your tags and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we're getting at is that 
animal has such a value that those outfitters spend a lot of time, money and effort preserving the habitat where they live. And without those guys in place, the locals, you know, there's a lot of population in Ethiopia and a lot of pressure to create agricultural land to create food. And if those outfitters weren't there hunting those animals and creating that infrastructure around them, um, if they were suddenly banned from hunting there, that, that forest would disappear in a matter of probably a five, six years, it would be gone. Yeah, it, it, would, it would definitely be encroached and logged and whatever they could do. And like you said, the, the agriculture is huge there, especially up in the Rift Valley where it's extremely fertile. So yeah, short, long story short, but it's a great example of how hunters and, and, and outfitters really care for the animals. I mean, they've got an economic reason to be there, but that's, you know, they don't do it to get rich and famous. They do it because it's their lifestyle. They're passionate about the animals. They love the animals and they want to look after them. And the best way to look after them a lot of the time is to have a value on them and, and look after them that way. So yeah, Ethiopia is a pretty, pretty cool place. Um, any others that jump to mind? Um, uh, let me think. Uh, I had a really good time in, um, I had a really good time in Peru, actually, and that's another, you know, that one's obviously more, um, civil, a little bit more civilized and stuff, but it was just kind of unique, you know, they were really diverse, uh, in, we hunted the, anywhere from, like, you know, the Amazon basin into the Andes mountains, um, we hunted, you know, we were on a very, you know, Peru recognized that they had, you know, some unique hunting there, they had whitetail species in the capybara that lives in the Amazon basin, and, and they had, um, you know, came in and they had some white-lipped peccaries or white-lipped or collared, one of the two. So they had a handful of, you know, huntable um, uh, animals in, in Peru. The country wanted to start sport hunting. And so Jim was approached to say, hey, come down and let's, can we advertise for Peru and see if we can start some sport hunting. Um, so Jim and I went down and we did... Uh, it took us a couple trips to get the whitetail, but we had a great hunt doing some other stuff, and it was just really cool, kind of seeing the diversity of the from you know all the way up floating the rivers in the Amazon, hunting the world's biggest rat, down to you know hunting deer, you know a little bit lower part, but it was also I think we were hunting deer at like eleven thousand feet, twelve thousand feet near Machu Picchu in the mountains, and then we were hunting. Um, yeah, we're kind of all over the country, but you know the culture there is fascinating. The scenery was fascinating. Uh, that's just one another one that sticks out to my mind, and especially that not many people think of Peru as a hunting destination. But you know, it's uh, it was a pretty un- pretty unique experience. Right. So we'll get on to what you're up to currently and at the moment. But just for any of the people out there listening, I mean, you're obviously a fairly experienced cameraman. You're always way more of a natural with a camera in your hand than I ever was or will be. Um, and I've always sort of looked up to you in, in terms of the quality of the footage that you produce. But, I mean, there's probably a, a number of people out there thinking, shit, this sounds like a bit of all right, how would I get into it? Or thinking, um, potentially, you know, how can I make my own footage a little bit better or get better at filming? What would be your, your main bit of advice when it comes to... Like, let's back that up. In your opinion, what makes good hunting footage? I got into the filming, you know, working for Jim. Um, I was, like you said, I do have, um, I've been very fortunate. I do have kind of a natural eye uh, when it comes to the hunting footage. So, I, you know, it, I definitely, 
um, advanced fairly quickly. And it just because I don't know what, but I just kind of saw things and I saw how it should be framed and how I thought how it just I really should frame it. And, you know, what the viewer or what I would like to see kind of matched up with, you know, majority of the viewers, you know, what they wanted to see on television. Um, uh, so when it comes to what I what I try to do is I try to show what is happening and not fake it. <laughs> you know, yeah, in a, in a re- it, it, the more running time, the better. Okay, so let's back this up so people understand what we're talking about. Real amateur, shitty, meat and potatoes hunting footage has what we call cuts in it. So that means, for example, there's an animal out there, you put your camera on a tripod, you zoom in, guy shoots it, it falls over. Then you take your camera off the tripod and you film everything you need to make that into a story. So it's more like a scripted thing. So you've got guys pretending to look down the scope. You've got guys pretending to say stuff and look through binoculars and they're all what we call cuts yeah and build the anticipation even though it's fake so running time is something that me and you always used to talk about so a running time kill shot you know say that you could film for a minute before the gun went bang and a minute after the gun went bang with no cuts it's just one full running fluid shot which is possibly one of the hardest things to do and that and that was you know like i said that was kind of what we learned but i'm glad i learned it because i truly deep down after being in this in being in this industry for over 10 years now is what i think is the best and it, it is the best the running time footage is so much more appealing so much more exciting and jim instilled that into us when we were learning that that's what he wanted and, and i truly believe he is right in that that a viewer should want to see what is truly, really happening, and may at certain times it may be a little bit shaky, or for a brief second or two it may be out of focus, but it's real, it's raw, it is truly what's happening. It's not being filmed after the person has shot the animal, and they're, you know, filming the fake stock and filming all this stuff to, to add this fake drama. Um, me and you, our goal was to always try and get the best running time kill shots possible because that's what truly happened and that is real and you can't fake a person's initial reaction you know their initial reaction is the raw the real their actual feelings you can go back and retake it five times but guess what hunters aren't oscar winning actors they're not going to be able to to convince the audience and that's why i can't watch hunting television nowadays because me i can see who's faking and i can see who's not and I've been kind of biased because I've been behind the scenes so much that I, you know, both and I, both you and I watching a hunting television show can go fake, fake, real, real, fake, fake, real, real as we watch a TV show and what's been produced after they've killed it and before. Yeah, and I totally agree. It's it's a it's a really hard thing to do, a skill wise to keep your camera and zoom, you know, like your camera steady enough, your zoom smooth enough, your composure, your everything in check to get that running time footage reading, that's hard enough know, reading the hunter reading the animal reading the whole situation making making keep an eye on the guide so the guide doesn't come in you're thinking literally 10 different things at once yeah and then sometimes being hunting animals do shit that completely screws <laughs> up your running you time footage guard. you know they'll stand behind a tree for 45 minutes or they'll you know when the guy shoots it the guy might shoot it not quite in the right place and it'll do something that's unsavory on camera and, and at that point there's no choice you have to have 
a cut in your footage and sometimes you've got no control over that. So as a professional cameraman, even if you think that you've got 100 out of 100, 10 out of 10 beautiful running time footage, you always film your cutaway shots or your quote-unquote fake shots to give the editor an yeah, option. You've got to have the safety. If something's gone wrong with your with your with your camera or your footage, or you you know you may have made more of a bobble than you thought you did, or somebody might have stood up in front of the camera and you didn't notice, and etc. 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 So I, that I, to me though, that's sort of the pinnacle. Yeah, and I think that all comes back down to you know a person starting in this in this industry or starting or wants to do something like this. Um, in order to get that running time shot, you need the right equipment. And I think you don't need a fancy $50,000 camera to go out and do this. Most of those $50,000 cameras have to be run on a tripod, you know. And I, I personally prefer, you know, sacrificing a little bit of video quality to go down to a more smaller, compact camera with a better stabilizer and getting better content rather than the best image quality but the best image quality has a big heavy camera and not as great of a stabilizer that helps, you know, float the image and, and stabilize uh, what you're filming. Um, so you don't have to be locked on a tripod because a tripod's going to, you just can't move and, and stay over the shoulder. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of, of having a smaller, more compact camera with a really good stabilizer and being able to be mobile and in position and, and so, and I mean, that's, and that leads back to, you know, a person that wants to start is they don't have to go and spend 50, 30, 20, 10. They don't even need to spend $5,000. You know, you can get a great camera between one, you know, a starting level camera can be anywhere as low as $500, you know, all the way up to three grand. And, and you can go out and film some hunts and, and, you know, work yourself into a better camera slowly as you kind of get better. So I mean that I'd I'd lament that you don't need a flash camera and to be honest, you know, having a camera that you can really use in real world stuff and not be petrified about it getting cooked in the rain and all that kind of stuff makes a big difference too. If you if you're gonna have it out and using it more often you're gonna get better and more candid footage. And then the second thing I think that's probably quite important for people to remember too is is audio. Yes. Audio, um I I I run a couple different setups. Um I, I usually like to do run a shotgun mic, which is a, you know, a mic, a big, um, a mic. Usually it's around a couple hundred dollars extra to put on top of your camera, um, and you big a big foamy kind of windscreen. So that's getting the surrounding audio. So that's gonna get you know some birds and you know the guide and and any kind of miscellaneous audio and then I what I'll usually do when I'm doing my private video stuff on for for hunters is I'll have a microphone on them so when they're talking to me I have perfectly clear audio of them but then also on my other mic I'm catching kind of everything the whole surroundings so I kind of got I got two different channels running audio and the audio is getting what the audio is going to do is going to you know you're going to get some narration from your hunter or from a guide you know, as you're doing a stock or as you're moving around, he's going to kind of keep you updated on what's going on. And, and a clear audio is definitely going to save your editor or you, if you're an editor, it's going to definitely help you in the long run. If you got some clear, great audio. And again, you know, you can get great audio mics for some Sennheiser G twos, I think, or whatever they are. G threes, I think something like that. There's $600 for a set of mics. So they're fairly expensive, but you don't, 
You can get some decent ones now yeah. that are aluminium frame. Me and Curran actually just bought a pair for some. Yeah, you don't need to go all out. I think they were three hundred bucks for a, yep. two, a set of two, which and we've had great luck with them so far. So though. there you go. You know, and you just you know, if someone's starting into it, you can honestly for a couple thousand dollars, you can get a great entry level stuff to go out there and film in your backyard and go chase some stuff around and just get. Well, you New Zealand boys have a, a massive advantage over people from around the world because you can hunt all year round and shoot as much as you like and nothing so there you go nothing is substitute for getting out there and getting out there and doing it and learning um you mentioned over before we probably glassed over it because we both know what we're talking about but what do you mean by over the shoulder um <clears throat> yeah and then this is another thing that kind of jim instilled in us um and then we kind of adapted and, and turned into our style as well the over the shoulder uh, is is what we were when we're referring to you know filming down the barrel over the shoulder on the right side of if you're a right-handed shooter you kind of you're gonna always kind of be behind your hunter when you're filming and you know when you get into a situation where he you know he's getting on a sticks or getting ready to shoot something you know you kind of you're wide angled and you're coming in behind it and you zoom down the barrel over over his shoulder to the animal and, and in the bottom left of the side of the camera or the left side of the frame you're going to kind of keep a blurred maybe one quarter of the frame you're going to kind of keep a blurred uh piece of a gun or or the shoulder or the hunter's head so and what that does is it proves to the audience that you're not faking it because in the in the image is the animal or what you're hunting in the background and there's also the hunter in there. So you're not sitting there rolling, faking it afterwards. Is the, the hunter's in the frame and and the animal's in the frame that you're pursuing. And and also you're right in position where, you know, say the animal's bedded sleeping or, or not in the right, you know, you can zoom back and you're right in that perfect position for your hunter to talk to you or, you know, reach, you know, look behind and whisper and, and give an update of what's going on. And it's really neat getting an update from a hunter with an animal 100 yards away or 80 yards away, right in mind, you can't fake that because guess what? The animal and the hunter in the same shot. So and that and that's that's another thing that you know we're very good at doing is the raw, real, over the shoulder stuff. That well, you might, might have been pretty good at. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I picked it up quicker than you, but you you definitely got there. <laughs> you know that's that's good advice for young guys and that's i mean that to be fair that's our style of filming and that's sort of how we were um trained and so it may not be for everybody but certainly i like if i'm watching hunting footage and i'm kind of like toddy these days i i struggle with the hunting tv stuff because it's just so obvious to us what's real and what's not but i really do like that over the shoulder authentic you know a little bit sort of jason borney type filming um and like i like i mentioned before it might be a touch shaky because guess what we're not using a tripod but our content video content is going to be better because it is real there's the animal there's the hunter this is what is happening live well not necessarily live but this is unedited well that's all good i'm sure i'll put your uh your instagram and your your social stuff in the description down below so if any of our listeners have got any questions for you about filming i'm sure you'd be happy to answer for them and of course um but so i know you've got to catch a plane so we'll, we'll get into our sort of quick fire questions right away um you can elaborate on these if you feel like it but um 
all disrupt into these. I think they're, they're kind of cool and we're going to try and do them with all of our guests along the way. So if you had no budget, no time restraints and could get a unlimited leave pass from head office, um, what would be your number one choice for an international hunt and why? If, if I had an, any amount of money? Yeah, money's not an issue. Oh, wow. That's... Uh... I've always wanted, and, and it's because our mutual friend Corey has a huge one. I want a really, really, really big Kodiak brown bear. That's cool. <laughs> I don't know what it is, and it's all, and maybe I have that on my brain because that's one of the hunts I haven't done, and I was supposed to go on that hunt, and and I had to do a different trip, but it was just kind of on my bucket list because, you know, when that bear stands up, he's eleven feet tall. And he had a permit for a very special area, um, uh, and it's an absolute gigantic animal that doesn't even look real when you see this thing. Yeah, it's a freak. It's like an absolute, it's absolute freak. freak. And yeah, that, I mean, okay, so and, and that's not. I mean, there's the way of... more expensive hunts. I mean, that's a, you know probably a fifty thousand dollar hunt, maybe sixty, seventy, all said and done. I mean, I Yeah, and I mean, you could go on a. $250,000 hunt, but for some reason that that animal to me just seems like it'd be a go-to. Okay, that's interesting. Good on you. Okay, if you had to if somebody came to you and said, look Toddy, we're, we're shutting down your complete hunting life, but you have to hunt one animal on repeat for the rest of your life. So, uh, one animal, one area, one season, but you can hunt them as much as you want. What, what one would you choose? Oh, you're making me think, man. Um... If I was to hunt one animal for the rest of my life. Because I understand the brown bear, that's awesome. But if it was me, I'd shoot an 11-foot brown bear and I'd be like, okay, I'm done brown boy. Yeah, no, I agree. I I, I agree on that one. Um, Not that the – I don't know. I I have a thing for maybe I'm a North America person. I've done – there's something about moose. And I don't know if it's just necessarily the one animal. I would probably pick moose in the Yukon. Like not yep. just moose as like anywhere, be, the species, but I would choose moose in the Yukon because, you know, I spent seven years. I've done eight seasons, eight or nine seasons in the Yukon now, and it's just so wild, so vast, so rugged, untouched, and they and the moose up in 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 those areas up there is beautiful. And just to be able to, if I was to hunt one animal, I'd probably pick moose in the Yukon because it's. I know I'd be going to such a beautiful, quiet, serene place, and moose is great, great to eat. Great to eat, good to you know. Yeah, and, and and not that it's a crazy big achievement, you know, to kill a moose. I mean, it's, they're not easy, but they're not necessarily hard. But I think just the whole experience of being able to go hunt a moose every year in that area, in that place, um, you know, it has a special place in my heart. You know, I think that would without thinking about that for the next hour, that kind of first thing kind of comes to mind. And I, I'd agree with that. That's a, that's a really good answer. All right. So to make you think a little bit more, um, proudest moment while hunting. Um, proudest moment. I don't know. I can't, I can't think of a specific moment and it, it may be really cheesy to say, but you know, donating meat to donating meat to, um, people, um, mainly Africa, and it and it's and it, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that just to be cheesy, but you know, when you can go and drop off a, a literally a truckload of meat at a, a local village and see people's 
face light up because they're getting some seriously good protein and good and good um, good food source that um, they don't have to risk a lot. Yeah, you don't have to risk poaching animals and getting shot at, and you know, and it's kind of neat to kind of be a part of something like that. Awesome answer. Scariest moment while hunting. Uh, scariest initial moment. We got shot at in Ethiopia. I don't know if exactly we were trying to get shot at, but we had a we were sitting in this sitting in a safari vehicle and we had a bullet crack right over top of us and we didn't know where it was coming from. We were sitting out in the wide open and we're all bailing freaking under you know, it's an open vehicle with no anything. We're sitting on the back of the vehicle and we didn't know what the heck happened and it was a a guy that was apparently shooting at an animal with an AK-47, but there was no animals in the area. And so it was really like for a brief, you know, 30 seconds, it was really unnerving because we were so exposed and and <clears throat> didn't know what was going on and what the heck. And so we, Jason, you know, drew, we drove over to this guy and we're like, what the, you know, what was going on? And he was like, oh, just shooting at the gazelle even though that was illegal for him to be doing that. So I don't know what if he was trying to find a warring shot to get us out of that area or what it was. But that was, you know, the one of the scariest probably 30 seconds of my life. Just didn't know if we were going to be get, keep getting shot at or... Yeah, that's the first... Literally, when you said that, that's the first thing that kind of came to mind. Yeah, I don't doubt. I can imagine it would be pretty unsettling. I'm quite thankful that... I know that guy in um, Romania accidentally shot at us when he was trying to kill that bear, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that was frightening. <laughs> I'm sure I'll tell that story at some point. Um, okay, that's good. What would be, if you had to recommend one piece of hunting kit that you sort of take everywhere with you, your, your one piece of, you know, thing that you'd always have with you, what would it be? Uh, and it can be for filming like, too. Yeah, oh, okay. I was going to say clothing-wise or gear-wise. Clothing... Um, I kind of have a standard, kind of standard hunting kit I put together, but I mean, off the top of my head, baby wipes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's spoken like a person yeah. that's hunted all over the world. They are a multifaceted piece of kit, that is. Yeah, uh, baby wipes is probably the essential, no matter whether I'm going to a, a, an Arctic hunt or a uh, jungle hunt or anything, mountain hunt. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, on a serious level, I try to, because, you know, I hunt for a living, um, I try to have the best equipment possible in, or what I can afford or what I'm able to get given or whatever it is. It's, it's certain hunts you just cannot half-ass gear. And I'm kind of pretty anal about my, my clothing, my boots. If you're going on a mountain hunt, you can't go on a mountain. I mean, you can only afford what you can afford, but in your budget, buy the best you can buy um if you're going on a mountain hunt for weeks buy the best possible boots you can buy because guess what your feet are the most important thing uh if you're going to a jungle place you don't necessarily need expensive t-shirts and shorts because you're there getting ripped but you know have a good pair of walking shoes and you're going to need a couple pairs of them because you're going to be walking all day long and you're going to be walking through swamps you're going to need a couple so I've always been a, an advocate of just, and I'm still the same way. I can't buy anything I desire because 
some hunting gear is extremely expensive. But so in my margins, I try to buy the best I can afford because it makes your life just a little bit better in certain elements. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I like that. All right, uh, last one here, and it's it's sort of a um, a, a pretty general one, and it might throw a spanner in the works, but. If you were to sum it up, why do you think it is that you hunt? Why do you hunt? Why do I hunt? Why do you hunt? There's different there's different reasons why I hunt. I hunt I mainly I grew up hunting um as a family thing, um spend time together. But mainly we were out um hunting black-tailed deer because we were we eat them, you know. It's the best meat, the healthiest meat, the cheapest. And yeah, it costs money for fuel and all that stuff. And it still costs money, but you're also spending time with your family and you're you're out in the wilderness instead of playing video games and, and drowning in a TV. It was, uh, so I grew up, it was kind of a, you know, tradition. It was a family thing that we did. And then I hunt now, um, I hunt now, obviously I do. I mean, I know, Todd, for for a fact, you could make money doing other things and probably a lot more money than you do working as a cameraman and guide and doing what you do. But, you know, you've obviously made a conscious decision to be in the hunting industry. Yes, definitely. Um, My wife, currently, uh, (laughs) my newlywed wife, uh, she would like me maybe to do something else and I'm really fighting because this job takes me away from her and our life uh, too much, but I I don't know I can't quit it. I mean it's uh it's something that's I guess in my DNA. It's something that I absolutely love to do. And whether I'm burnt out from being on the road for seven weeks, I mean it's like I get to hunt for a living. It's it's something that I really truly enjoy. And it's I don't know I can't do anything else for eighteen hours a day and and actually want to wake up the next day and go do it. And yeah, certain, certain hunts are better than others. Certain times are easier than others, but it's, you know, I still come back home and want to go do it again. Um, as a whole, I hunt because I love it. I hunt because I know it's the best. I know it's, yes, we are killing animals, but I know in the long run it is for the best. It is for wildlife management. It, uh, I would rather eat what I shoot than, eat what's on shelves it's it's yeah that's it's a it's a simple question but it's a it's a crazy question because it's multifaceted and it's different for everybody and it's it's a lot more complicated and the reason we ask everybody that question is you know when we we finally get some people who will start listening to this podcast it may not be hunters i think that everybody's answer to this question is going to be so different and And it's not as simple this is why i hunt i'll be shocked and taken back if I ever interview anyone on this podcast that turns around and says because I love killing shit because it's way 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 more complicated than that and as hunters we struggle at times to articulate why we hunt because it is very yeah complicated. no I'm sitting here thinking about how I could really sum it up in a two sentence or even one sentence thing and it's you can't you can't you really can't. absolutely can't it's it's actually very hard to explain and I, I i hit like five different things while i was trying to do it because i was trying to rack my brain on the simplest form to explain why i hunt i mean we're guilty sometimes of when people ask well why would you want to do that it's it's a hard thing to articulate so rather than trying to you know 
push your way through an answer like that as hunters sometimes we're guilty of turning around to a person who doesn't hunt and says well because i can or because i want to or something like that that's a it's a you know leave me alone i'm going to do what i do you do me i'll do you exactly other way around i'll do me you do you yeah that's it (laughs) something like (laughs) that. something like that but anyway i think it's a a great way to finish i really appreciate you taking the time toddy i know you got to get to the airport no no problem i'm glad i came over we need to spend more time together and i think that um, the conversation that we've had and there's so many stories that have been left untold i think that we will do a follow-up episode in the not too distant future just to we don't live too far away from each other no we don't at the moment we should make the most of that so let's do that let's have a bit of a think about some different stories and we can um, hopefully entertain whoever's listening with some more stories of africa and asia and and we can you know i'd love to have some more chats and we can we've been kind of all over the map on this one and we can kind of narrow it down on a future chat and be more specific on the actual filming side or or the conservation or whatever but it's you know it's been it's been a blast to talk about a little bit of everything yeah buddy been awesome cheers thank you thank you for listening to the educated hunter podcast if you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting educational entertaining or inspiring within the hunting world as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives, and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram, at theeducatedhunter, or finally, join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and catch you on the clearing.